Blog Talk Radio. I have an emergency. What is your location? Yes, indeed there is. Welcome to Rescue Radio. Let's pray. Father God, you are God. You are good, you're righteous, you're holy, you're just, you're full of love and mercy. And I pray, God, today that you give us an understanding of who you are and how this thing works. The wrath of God revealed against unrighteousness. And how does the love of God work with this, with this righteous indignation? Father, I pray that you'd give us not only eyes to see and ears to hear, but you'd also give us a heart to comprehend and desire to know. I thank you, Jesus, for salvation. I thank you. You died. You rescued. You redeemed. You bought and paid for us. We are yours. We are free. We are saved. And I thank you, Lord. We have chosen to walk in that salvation. I thank you that you've also given us, uh, shared with us your power to bind, to loose, and to forgive, which becomes basic to the walk and the work of a believer. I thank you, Jesus, for the promise that no weapon formed against us will prosper. And so we stand on that promise today that no word said, no deed done, no action taken against us or our families or those who work for us or pray for us or love us will prevail against um, the the will and purposes of God and the kingdom of God, that the enemy's work and intentions are put to naught. And Lord, I pray that you'd also cause us to rightly divide your holy word of truth, which brings freedom. I thank you, Lord God, that you will give us peace and understanding, unity and, and agreement And of your word, Father, this day and through these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome. Uh, I'm solo today as my roving host is roving again today. So we're talking today about a very interesting subject. It's called, if you've hit hit the title yet, The Wrath of God Revealed. And you know that ultimately the wrath of God must be revealed against the unrighteousness of men. Uh, As it's talked about, it says in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We'll get back to that in a bit. But if you look at what's going on, we kind of always begin with where we are. Uh, Where else can we begin, right? That for some, you know, people are, I I see anyway, it looks like to me, like people have outgrown their, um, their, need for God or their interest in God uh, in their daily lives. They've substituted um, many other things for a relationship, a passionate love or relationship or pursuance of God. Um, they've grown weary of God. Don't get, don't get it. Why is it happening? Don't understand why God is letting this happen. Um, God is fading from our eyes, from our hearts, from the midst of us. And yet at the same time, he is the enemy is deliberately working to do that, to create that fading and that disillusioning. Um, the need for God is becoming more intense and, and uh, desperate. So um, we'll, when Jesus said, you know, he actually referred to this when he was here, he says, when I come back to the earth, will I really find faith on the earth? And, you know, that question is a very foretelling um, question. It, it, it tells us what we don't want to hear, that there's going to be a lot of apostasy. I think we've, we've already been there, are doing, and in the midst of that, apostasy in the church falling away, 
substituting other gospels. We've talked about that uh, for a lot uh, a lot of times. But will he really find people who are passionate, faithful stewards and servants, looking for, diligently waiting for, looking up and and ready for his coming? Or is it going to be like he said also that it was in the days of as it was in the days of Noah, um, that they did not know, they didn't know until even the flood came upon them. They didn't have a clue that they were off track, that they were going in the wrong direction, that this eminent uh, judgment, danger, threat, peril was upon them and their families. So we see that some people, a few, maybe a very few, um, are really walking with God and, and intensely serious about their relationship with God, almost to the point where they become victimized by their own desires for God, by the enemies taking advantage of them, to cause them to do all kinds of religious things that actually end up discouraging and deceiving them. Then we have a bunch who are miserably content to do their own thing. And I think that's a very good description of a lot of people. They're miserably content. They get used to doing what they're doing. They're miserable. They're unhappy. But that's all they know. And they just find ways to uh, keep that little boat afloat, you know, by blaming other people, making excuses, using escapes, whatever. But they're miserable. So the fruit, if you, if you want to know if you're going in the right direction, check the fruit of your life. That's easy. You know, if it's happiness, joy, peace, goodness, mercy, faithfulness, good, uh, you know, just, you know, hope. If it's that, peace, joy, love, it's God. If it's not, it's not God. And misery is not God. But then most have become, as I would define them, uh, immersed, sedated, seduced, embedded, programmed, deceived, distracted, distressed, diseased, overwhelmed, angry at God, confused, misled, misled into our own, you know, spiritual pursuits, thinking that they're right, offended, oppressed, upset. These are not in alphabetical order, though. Unconvinced, disillusioned in their lives. And I'm sure you could probably add another page full of descriptors that would describe where most people are today. And every one of them is coming as the result of a lie, believing something that's not true to be true, putting that lie in the place of truth in your life, and then having to live with feeling overwhelmed or your body full of dis- disease or your heart full of distress when God has words for all those conditions in his word. As a matter of fact, let's read out of his word for just a minute to kind of talk about uh and introduce, actually, the topic. It's uh, Psalm 119. A very hidden verse in Psalm 119 uh, is Psalm 137, which is, there's 176 verses in this psalm, so it's right in the middle, basically. I'm sure most people don't read it. Anyway, this is what the Lord showed me this morning. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright in your judgments. This is what we do a lot. We look at God's judgments, and we think we understand what's going on, or we don't understand And because we do or don't understand or we think we understand, we make judgments against God. That's not fair. That's not right. How could God do these kinds of things? So, but the word says, righteous are you, O Lord, righteous and upright in your judgments. Your testimonies, which you have commanded, are righteous and very faithful. So he's saying, God is faithful. It doesn't matter what it looks like. David is saying, my zeal has consumed me because of my enemies. Because my enemies have forgotten your words. Well, that's kind of true. I think that we get kind of provoked or, you know, overwhelmed ourselves by seeing how the enemies of God have cast his words away. 
But he says, your words are very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. And I am small and despised. Yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. And your law is truth. Your law. Talk about law. Talk about legalism. God's laws are faith, love, and truth. I've seen that in the Bible. I've seen all of those. So God's law is a law of truth. And we'll talk about that at the end. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me. Well, we can say that's pretty much true of everybody. Yet your commandments are my delight. Now, how is this happening? If God's commandments are our delight and they're true and God is righteous and his words are pure, then how is it that we suffer so much trouble and anguish and they overtake us? The right and right, the righteousness of your testimonies are everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. I think that's the right prayer to have. Give me understanding and I will live. So we're going to try to work today at getting a little understanding. to try to work. I don't even like those words. Let's erase those words. We're going to understand today what, what God has already given us through his word to understand. And as his spirit helps us, we put these things together so they make sense. In Romans chapter 3, we have some very famous verses. Uh, starting with verse 9, Paul is making a, uh, an argument or apologetic about what's going to happen to the Jewish people those who have rejected the word and counsel of God, um, those who are still trying to justify themselves through the law. And then he, mo- he moves from that, um, you know, how are they're, they're trying to justify themselves by the law. He, he, ma- he makes some very astute observations. He's, he says, what then, verse 9, are we better than they, Gentiles or, the, you know, the saved people? Not at all, for we have all previously charged both Jew and Greek that they are all under, under, under sin, all under sin, all enslaved, as Paul talked about. We're all charged with sin in the court of heaven. Stop. All charged. Charges have been pressed against you by the accuser in the court of heaven that has brought you under the conscription of the evil one, drafted by him into his army of sin and oppression. So we are all enslaved under sin. That doesn't mean, you know, we are disp- uh, despicable or uh, depraved. It just means that we are all in bondage, enslaved to sin. Okay, so let's define sin. Sin, simple definition, is anything that separates us from God, from ourselves, or from others. Separates in terms of relationship. It has to do with relationship. Sin has to do with separation. Uh, relationships have to do with connections. So sin breaks relationships. Sin can be a thought, and that's different from a temptation. A temptation is a, temp- is a temptation, or a, it's a, uh, a, a thought Satan puts in your mind to think you thought so that you will embrace it as your own. When we get a temptation or an evil thought in our mind, the Bible says take captive every thought and make it subject to the obedience of Christ. So you say, no, 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 not, not going to do that. I rebuke you, you know, spirit of hatred, spirit of gossip, spirit of whatever, be gone. But it can be a thought if we meditate on it and begin to premeditate on how we're going to plot, carry this thing out. And it can also be an action, you know, the agreement with the lie that brings forth the action um, against that other person, against ourselves, or against God. Sin is conceived, as James tells us. It's very simple. The conception of sin, how does it get started? It's conceived when we give our consent to, and that is when we give our agreement with the lie to embrace and use the devil's solution as to our problem. When we make an agreement, believing the lie, we make an agreement with a suggestion made by the lie, 
and we use that agreement as the solution to our problem, we have now brought forth sin. Sin is conceived out of our agreement with the devil's solution. Those two brought together create sin and sin when it's fully grown. James 1, 13, 14 says, brings forth death. So, um, you, you know, the solutions that Satan will bring us oftentimes appear good at first, helpful, immediate. You know, we like this immediate stuff all the time, immediate everything, instant everything. And the instant everythings of life are actually killing us, including our instant food. You know, it's too much work to, you know, get out the knife and peel the potato and, you know, cook it in the water. And you can just rip open a bag and throw something in your, you know, your deep fryer or whatever. Or your microwave. That's even better, faster. Yuck. Okay. Um, but the solutions may appear to be good at first, and they, they bolster our self-reliance, independence, and that reliance or trust in God um, is, is against God, is, is based on fear. So God wants us to rely upon him, trust in him, but the devil's solutions are always based on fear. Check it out. Just check out what you're doing right now and do your spiritual math and reduce it down and see what it reduces down to. Is what you're doing right now, thinking of doing right now, being tempted to do or tempted to feel or say, is, does it reduce down to fear? If it, if it does, then it's based in a lie. Um, the Bible says in Romans 14, 23, whatever, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So God is all about faith. God's relationship with us is based on faith. All relationships are based on faith, really. You're trusting the words, the actions, the deeds, the intentions of that other person. So that's why God requires faith, because he wants a relationship with us, a good one, one a, a relationship of love and peace. So when he asks us to base our relationship with him on faith, it's simply the way it is. You know, um, when you believe someone, you would love someone, engage yourself to someone and marry someone or, or take care of someone, it's because if, you, if, you, if it's by faith, you're doing it because you believe. You believe in the promise that this is a relationship you want to keep. So all of God's, he's asking us to take this step of faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen, or is it verse, you just reverse that same thing. It's a substance that is not yet visible. And the promises that he makes to us are, many of them are still promises in promise form. They're not yet in our hand, <clears throat> like the finished work of our salvation being joined with him forever in heaven. That is, Abraham looked for a city whose whose builder and maker was God. He wasn't there yet by any means. He actually never ever built a city for himself, like a lot of these guys in the Old Testament did. He wandered around, and he believed God, and he did what God said, and he kept looking to the horizon for that city from heaven. And sure enough, he found it. Um, But God wants us to believe him for the promises that he's made to us, and those God's kingdom, God's work, God's relationship is built on words like love and knowing that we are known and looked after and protected. His words are grace, grace to forgive and be forgiven. So God's whole thing is about the promise, about trust, about faith, about knowing that we're known to protected grace and forgiveness and being forgiven. None of that goes with the devil's kingdom. The devil wants nothing to do with any of that. He doesn't want you to know anything. He doesn't want you to feel loved. He wants you to be afraid. He wants you to feel abandoned. He doesn't want you to feel protected. He wants you to feel endangered. 
He surely doesn't give us any grace or mercy, nor is there any pardon or forgiveness with the devil. He's opposite. Everything is opposite. So it's not, it shouldn't be that hard to figure out which side you'd want to be on. But so his sin, sin is based on fear. And it comes out of a life of agreement with the lie. The agreement with the lie we make with the liar, the father of lies. Do you want a relationship with him instead of the Lord? That, I guess, becomes the question. Whose report are you going to believe? It's all about believing. It's not about doing like you thought. It's about believing. Out of believing and abiding comes doing. And the doing is actually fruit. The works are actually fruit that come out of the abiding, are abiding in the vine. Jesus is the vine, of course. So separation from God is not, ever, never was God's plan for us. The isolation, the abandonment, the being independent were not his plan for us. Fear, worry, you know, we freak out. The injustice are not his desire for us or his plan at this earth any more than the many trials we must endure. Um, those, those trials that, that we go through, God says, um, you know, he tests the hearts and the reins or the wills of men. It says he tests, he permits us to be tested really is what it means. But those trials on his part, from his perspective, from God's point of view, are not there to teach us a lesson. They're not there to test the strength of our love. They're not there to prove our loyalties to, to him. Although the trial of our faith does do all of that. That's kind of a byproduct of the trial of our faith. It brings us to, to understanding. It, it teaches us endurance and strength and the faithfulness of God to um, complete his work in us, to be faithful, to go with us through our afflictions, to be loyal and faithful to us. So really, though our trials teach us, our, the trial of our faith does bring all these things into our life. Our trial of faith really comes out of Satan's hatred, his hatred for us and his jealousy of God. And his determination to find flaws, actually, with God's character by finding flaws in his craftsmanship, which is us. For we are, the Bible says in Ephesians 2, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose or unto good works. So we are God's children made in his image. The devil hates us. He's bound and determined to find some fault with God by finding fault with his offspring. And that isn't that hard to do. Since God made us very vulnerable and very needy, <laughs> we're very needy. We need a lot of things to just be okay down here in a normal way, like we need air to breathe, water to drink, food to eat. We need meaning and purpose in our lives. And so in every place of vulnerability, we become vulnerable, or every place of need, we become vulnerable to the devil's solutions to the, the problem. He deprives us, depletes us, and then he offers us a solution and, of course, taking that solution is rejecting God's goodness and God's provision. God also provides, but his solutions usually come second. The devil used to, gets to run into the room first and offer, open his hand and answer your prayer and send you the, the whatever you've been crying out for. You think it's God. It's not God. It's the devil. And he tricks us because God is waiting waiting to give us an opportunity to make a choice. And of course the Holy Spirit's right there inside of us. Say, ah, da, 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 da. Red flag. No, no, not that, not that. Don't do that. You know, so many times we just ignore those red flags. We call them red flags or whatever we call them. But it's really the Holy Spirit saying, I object, I object. The real war, obviously, is between the two of them, God and Satan. And we are kind of like caught in the middle. 
uh, and we've said this before, the, we're the prize. Um, and we're also the battlefield because the goal um, and the, the test of the end, the end game, the end game is our eternal destiny. The end game. Where are you going to spend eternity? Oh, people say, oh, I don't even know if I believe in that anymore. Well, uh, uh, that ain't good. If you believe there is no eternity, no eternal destiny, you just fall into the ground, die and rot like a piece of, you know, like a, I don't know, a, a plant or an animal or something. We have a soul that endures forever. Um, we are qualified, you know, to enter into eternal life through the salvation that Jesus bought for us, paid for us, uh, to spend eternity with God, you know. Or we can reject that salvation and end up being claimed as hell's property. Because we rejected God. So that's why it all boils down to faith. Whose report are you going to believe? You know, what are you going to, um, you know, choose? And a lot of times we make a lot of bad choices and wrong choices, and that doesn't mean that's the final choice. Okay, guys? You've made a lot of bad choices, so have I. We've all been tricked. That's part of the game. God wrote that right into the equation. He knew the devil would trick us. But the thing is, you can, we can repent. Um, God has mercy on the souls of those who... Um, know the truth, walk in the truth, choose the truth. Does that make sense? God's dilemma. So we have God in a dilemma here. Does God have a problem? Um, I say he's got a lot of situations. Let's just put it that way. I don't know if any of them are, he would consider them problems. God has situations, dilemmas, um, um, because of sin. He's in a dilemma because he's given us free will. He's in a dilemma because he's given us um, a right to choose to reject him. And so um, because of sin and our disobedience and, you know, being tricked by the devil, he is, his, he, he is in a dilemma. He has a desire. God has a desire. And get what? Guess what? God has a desire to be loved and to be known and to have a relationship of meaning and genuine love and purpose with his creatures. He created us to know and desire and respond to him and his love. He needs to be loved. He wants to be loved. Why? Because he's love. He is love. God is love. What is love without an object to love? What is love without someone to reciprocate that love? It's nothing. Love does not even define itself or exist in, with one person. You have to have another thing or person or object or situation for that person to respond to in love. So God by himself alone, even in the Trinity, was looking for a way, they were looking for a way to express their love. And so that's why they created us, make us in their, let us make man in our image, they said, in the plural. So they're looking to be loved and known, and, um, but actually, um, that's all God really wants. He wants to be loved, to be known, to be able to share and exchange his fellowship with us. Um, but, you know, as the word says, a lot of people have left their first love. Um, many have never even had it in the first place. Uh, in other words, how, how, you know, what's happened is that that love and that intention of God to, you know, that intention that was very obvious in paradise has been lost and replaced by the snake pit of life. So we're born into this snake pit. We didn't desire necessarily to come here. We didn't, you know, choose it. God chose us. Jesus said, I've chosen you and, and called you to bring forth, anointed you, appointed you to bring forth much fruit. But as we live in this pit, 
uh, under the influence of the psychological reconditioning and reprogramming of the devil, um, things like lust and passion and strong emotional reactions and the release of brain chemicals have been substituted for love. People get love and lust mixed up. Love, true love, the love of God, God is the source and origin of love. Love comes with a price, always comes with a price. The price is suffering. Think about it. Suffering, sacrifice, enduring through the hardships of misunderstanding and offense, the resisting of temptation to abandon love um, because it's too one-sided or painful or hard. Love costs you a lot. It costs you everything you are. When you get married, for example, you cease being a one-person person. You have another person in your life. You've come together in a covenant, not just a contract, but it, it, then you have children, and all of this adds to the pressure. And if you don't have children, you're isolated, then you're just as in pain because you're longing for love or you want love or you're looking. I'm not saying single people can't have love. not saying that. I'm saying many of them do have great, great um, affection and love and relationships. But in every one, we're all called to have relationships, and even if it's with your cat, but in those relationships with humans, there's often opportunities to be misunderstood, to be offended, um, and, and to uh, suffer pain because the other person is in pain. Or you're in pain because they don't understand love. There's just many, many, many things that can go wrong in this relationship with love. And God, of course, is experiencing a lot of these. And, of course, he knew all of it ahead of time. So God is willing to suffer with us, isn't he? He's afflicted with us, Isaiah says. He's afflicted. He went through afflictions for us. He goes with us through our afflictions. Um, he's merciful. He gives us grace and strength and comfort and hope and justice and restoration. Uh, restoration. And he promises that I will never leave you. Why does he say that? Because abandonment is the opposite of love and relationship. If there's no one there, there's no love. That means if there's no one there, you're abandoned. They don't care. You're not important. You're not worth it. You're not worthy of love. That's how the devil reduces that down when you're alone. And so loneliness is a terrible thing. But God is never not there. He's always there, even if you're in the darkest place in the most desperate hour. Um, you know, and there's no one else there. God is there. So <clears throat> let's look at what God is doing. So we're going to go for a quick break, and then we're going to look at this God and what he sees. Life Recovery offers a wide variety of books, teaching manuals, CDs, and DVDs, all designed to expose Satan's lies and equip believers with the powerful weapons of spiritual warfare. So God sees, he sees and speaks and tells us through his word what has happened to his creation and why it happened and what will happen as a result of it. That's called the Word of God, the Bible. He tells us in the beginning. He tells us what happened in the middle. And he tells us what's going to happen in the end. In Romans 3.10, we're looking at some of the stuff that happened in the middle as a result of um, people being swept o o and taken over, overtaken by the lie. He says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. 
There's none who does good, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God. All of these things have happened because we have chosen fear. The fear is to the love. It says there's no fear of God. That would be there's no respect of God. There's no honoring of his word. There's no considering of his word as truth. There's no fear of God before their eyes. God warned us of these very incredibly awful dangers. I mean, seriously, living on the planet is not safe. But we really don't have any options unless, of course, you want to go to Mars, and I don't think it's any better up there because the same demons are also, and they probably have, inhabit Mars directly. Who knows? But anyway, um, God warned us of these awful dangers that Satan's attempt to corrupt the image of God in us was going to happen. He was going to deplete us, drain us of love, and fill us with disillusion and with despair. You know, and what has happened as a result of this, it has provoked God to wrath against us. The very thing Satan has been trying to do since the first, from the very beginning, to get God so mad that God would destroy his own creation. Because you notice the devil can't seem to do it. He's got a kind of in a double bind here, the devil is. I mean, if he destroys all the creation, then where is he going to live? And yet he hates the creatures, the humans. Actually, the humans are his big problem. And that's really what he's targeting to get rid of. He doesn't have a big plan to get rid of the rabbits and the birds necessarily, although they might die with us. But the thing is, see, Satan can't destroy it, but he hates God and he wants to provoke God to bring wrath and judgment upon the earth. So Satan's hatred for us uh, is so, you know, he so hates us um, completely. His his hatred is only completely going to be satisfied when we are annihilated. That's it. He wants to get rid of us. But he himself cannot do it. So therefore, he has provoked God to get rid of us, which he cannot technically, Satan cannot technically do, like I just said. So if he can, he, he promotes, provokes the, the indignation of God, he gets us to sin, he creates the, uh, fills that cup of the wrath of God with the indignation, the atrocities, um, the, the blood guilt, the bloodshed, the wickedness. He gets that cup full, and when it's full to overflowing, then God acts. And he knows that, Satan knows that. We see, we've seen that in the provocation when the imagination of man was only evil continually after the first incursion when Satan came down and, and the, the sons of God had sexual intercourse with the daughters of men and they brought forth the Nephilim, which then corrupted the DNA, which, which crossed the kinds, which created evil intentions and monsters and everything else that was going on in the days right before Noah. And so God, you know, God had a plan, though. His plan was kind of interesting. He, was, he, he had to wash away the sin, the judge the wickedness, clear up the atmosphere because these things were killing his people. And yet he saved out of that mess the one good set of DNA that was left by creating the ark. So God did not 
purge the entire earth. He did not throw away his dream, though Satan pushed him. Not that he pushed him. I mean, God already knew this was going to happen. God had a plan all along. And remember, that plan was given in Genesis to the woman and Adam and Eve. To, I will send the head crusher. And that head crusher had not yet. So we know God was not finished with his plan, even though Satan was trying to cause God to prematurely abort his plan. That's exactly what Satan was trying to do, get God to quit, to let go, to, you know, they're in this, you know, uh, this tug of war that Satan, there's no way he can ever, ever win. There's no way. And from our point of view, maybe he looks strong, but from God's point of view, he's hardly a worthy opponent at all. But nonetheless, God was determined to be faithful to complete his promise, which he is doing. And so he saved Noah. But we can see how at, at points where things get so bad, like Sodom and Gomorrah, another example of that, where God had to permit a purging or a cleansing. So we can say, well, wow, then God is destroying his own creation. Well, no, not really. God is destroying what Satan has created of God's creation. This hurts. When God sees us hurting, it hurts him. That's what hurts God, what he sees hurting us, having to watch us hurt. Um, That's what causes God pain. And that's Satan's vendetta against God as well, to get God, the love of God, the heart of God, to hurt for the pain that God's sons and daughters are going through. Um, don't think that when people don't give their lives for the Lord and they're martyred for the faith, for, the, for believing in the love of God, don't think that God takes that lightly. God is right there. He's right there. Um, that's why we can stop worrying about dying for Jesus. First of all, you need to get going and live for Jesus before you worry about dying. You can't die for Jesus if you can't live for him. So let's start living for him and worry about the dying when it gets to that point. We won't worry because God has already got it. But Satan's vendetta is to get even with God and make him watch as he destroys God's creation. You know, just as Satan um, had to watch. Remember when, um, you probably don't know this, well, you do. Some of you do, I actually... When God commanded that the watchers watch while the Nephilim destroyed themselves because they were too big for the humans to destroy and they were actually eating the human beings, that Satan was commanded to watch. He had to watch. The watchers had to watch their own offspring being destroyed. And now, you know, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, blow for blow, blood for blood, watching for watching, Satan is making sure that God has got to watch when all of his sons and daughters are being crushed by the enemy. How much do you think God likes to see that? He doesn't. Um, that's what the devil's plan is. That's how the devil gets his jollies. Um, he knows what will provoke the, lo- the wrath of God, and he wants to provoke God to come into judgment, to judge, to act in judgment against his people. Um, so the devil tries to, uh, he does that, accomplishes that by getting us to agree with him, to uh, to disobey God, to um, then, and with that crazy twist, Satan is actually using the very things that God loves the most, which is us. He's using us, the thing God loves, to provoke God to judge us and therefore destroy us. Isn't that sinister and insidious? That's what the devil does all the time. Thus the devil provokes God by tempting us to sin. And it's interesting, if you look in James for a second, it's, you know, we say, well, how can God, you know, 
let this happen and why and how could he being uh, does God, it gets all crazy doesn't it in James it says chapter 1 verse 13 let no one say when he is tempted I am tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone now let's read that carefully we're not tempted by God God does not set up a situation and provoke us and tempt us to see what we're going to do or to see if we really love him or to prove our faithfulness. He's not that insecure. He already is God and knows everything. He already knows what's going to happen. And he knows that a lot of us get tricked pretty easily into falling for the lie, at least in the beginning, if we don't know much about it. But it says, for God cannot be tempted by evil. So even when the devil's provoking him to, you know, this indignation thing, that He cannot, God cannot be tempted by evil. So he's not acting or reacting, I should say, to the indignation, although as a parent, this is very much like being a parent. You know, the child can disobey, 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 disregard, rebel, da-da-da-da-da, until you have to do something as the parent. You don't want to do something, but for the sake of their life or their safety, and because you do love them, you do something that doesn't look very loving. You put your foot down. You say no. You do the tough love thing. And that is really love. It's just that you have to, at this point, love demands an an, uh, extreme demonstration of love and rescue by doing something that does not appear soft and warm and fuzzy and nice and gushy. But it also says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, nor does he himself. He himself does not tempt anyone. He does not have it in his mind. His mind isn't double. It isn't corrupt. It isn't bipolar. It isn't, you know, you know, um, schizophrenic or whatever. He's not, you know, being two different things. God, however, is a, a complete integration of two different things, which we appear to, appear to be different, but they're really not. Mercy and justice. Justice and mercy do not seem to be the same thing, but in God they are one. But he himself tempts no one. But of course... That isn't even needful that he tempt anyone because the devil's so busy doing it for him. This is huge. Um, God does not tempt us. He does, he, but he is put upon to allow us to be tempted as the devil. Why? How? How does that work? That the devil can even put any pressure on God at all? How does the devil put pressure on God to tempt us? Or how does he provoke God or put upon God to let God or get God to let him tempt us to test us um the answer is because the devil also also gets to present his case in the court of god there is a court of god a court where justice and mercy rule and satan is able and also permitted to present as we see with job guys that is in the bible for a reason it's one of the very first books of the bible you should read it satan went up there to test Job. He wanted to provoke. He, he, he couldn't find, there was nothing wrong with Job. God even said it. Have you seen my righteous servant Job? And God was calling Job righteous when he wasn't even done yet. He was so excited for how Job was doing, righteous, praying for his children, uh, being faithful, doing all those good things he did, um, being sensitive to the weak and the poor and the whatnot. And Satan says, yeah, right. right." Satan didn't believe that Job's motives were pure. And so of course, he provoked God or petitioned God, maybe is a better word. Let me test him. And so God permitted it. God permits what he permits. So the mechanism for this allowing of this kind of 
state and presenting his case, the mechanism, of course, is the court itself. So this would allow such contradictions as how can a good God, God is good and not willing that any should perish, John 3.16, be set up in the same breath as um, allowing such enslavement, depravity to descend upon thee and operate in his creation. How can those two things go on side by side? So the mechanism is really the universal code of justice. And we, you know, there's a really good book out there called Destined for the Throne by Paul Bilheimer. Really excellent, simple, straightforward, awesome book. Read it if you can find it. It's probably pretty old. It's probably in the um, discontinued books by now. It's not recent. Um, so this mechanism, the universal code of justice, as Paul Bilheimer kind of calls it, um, comes out of God's love and justice. It comes out of his love and his justice. Both, both his love and his justice or his mercy and his justice have to be acknowledged and completely satisfied. Both. Both. Justice has to be satisfied. Mercy has to be satisfied. God favored justice over mercy or mercy over justice. They must be agreed. They must be satisfied together. So there must be a deciding factor. What, what changes things? What causes things to go this way or that way when God is integrated fully and both justice and mercy come together as one in God? Um, well, the devil is the problem. He's always been the problem. He's always trying to upset the harmony of the universe, the balance, the harmony, justice. Justice means that everything is getting what it needs. Everybody's getting the love that they're owed. The Bible says, owe no man anything. Don't have any debts except one debt you'll never get done paying, and that is to love one another. Keep paying that debt. Owe no man anything but to love them. You're going to have to love them always. That's a debt you can't finish until we meet Jesus face to face. We can't finish paying on that debt. Um, but the but the enemy is always trying to deprive, deplete, withhold, steal, bribe, cause imbalances uh, in the universe, in the creation, through injustices, through sin, through greed, through bitterness, through words. Injustice is what it really is, is where the debt of love that is required by law, the law of love is not being paid. That's what injustices are. There's sin, sin against the law of love. Um, so, that's how someone can withhold love and kindness, which includes the golden rule, by failing to um, ascribe to truth and, and value and affirmation and dignity and esteem to the other person, to each other. So fear, going back to fear, I, I'm afraid if I give you what I have, I won't have enough. Fear says I'm going to keep it for myself. Fear says um, you don't deserve it, whatever it is, this love thing. And so that's why we see this crazy behavior in mankind. That's why God says, just come over here and be on love's side. And just, do, just do the golden rule. Just do love. Don't try to make it fair. You, you, you guys, you can't do fair anyway. You get in trouble. I'll take care of justice. You forgive them and I'll do it. I'll, I'll make it right. I'll make it right. I'll make it fair. So, but when the law of love is broken, justice must somehow come in and correct the errors. Or there will be a continuance and a growing jeopardy in all of those who live. That'll mess up everything, everybody. And that's what has happened. The, the enemy's allowed, been allowed for a long, long time to go in and mess up the harmony of creation. 
And that's been since before we were even created, there was a disruption in the harmony when there was rebellion in heaven. So let's listen to how God is in trouble. Extra, extra, read all about it. God's in trouble. You've just tuned in to EUL, Eternity Uplink, where you are getting all the up-to-the-minute information on the biggest news since the flood. The Court of Heaven has been called into a special session to resolve the dispute in the landmark trial between God and Satan. The shock has left the earth spinning. I heard that the battle is over the souls of the humans. The score was never really settled at Eden, and now it's erupted into this. Satan challenging God's right to rule the world. Can you believe it? First Eden, now Earth, where will it stop? Stay tuned for the latest developments as the story unfolds. Or download the latest episodes to your iPod. This is Angel Anchor. And Court Reporter for EUL. Indeed, God is on trial in the hearts of men every day. And uh, God on Trial actually is our audio drama, radio drama, and uh, it's available at our website and our store on liferecovery.com. Extremely uh, inspiring, entertaining, and educational. It's, um, it's really worth your looking into. All right, that's just my opinion, but I think it's a good one. Okay, back to God. So God, you know, he has given us a free will, and with that free will, God is always advising us, encouraging us, instructing us to use our free will to love and forgive. Forgive means you turn the crimes over to God. You let God judge them, and you just pursue by the grace of God and the strength of God the power of love. Love is the most powerful. Fear is the second most powerful thing in the universe. Conquers all, believes, you know, love never fails. Love never fails. Even if you think it looks like it's failing and they aren't responding, and it just seems like, you're beating a dead horse in that relationship. By God's grace, you're doing the right thing and just continue to do the right thing. You don't have to have immediate feedback because you've already got ultimate feedback in God's word. And he says, love never fails. So just don't look at what it looks like. Don't look at what it feels like. Don't look at how those people are responding back to you. Don't be hung up or tricked or deceived or distracted into looking at that or how it feels. It does not matter how it feels. Because God is going to give you, make, give you grace to make it feel better. So what he's asking us to do when there's an offense or an injustice, and by the way, that we've talked about this before and we'll talk about it again, I'm sure, how that many times the offenses are sins that have been committed against us by those who are not even alive anymore or before we were born. And we can also confess those injustices and iniquities and forgive those people, release them from judgment by forgiving them, and then release ourselves from the demonic patterns of judgment that have come as a result of that. And we can't repent for their sins, um, but we can repent for our own agreements with the lies that have opened the door to that type of sin in us. And we can confess the sins. That's why God says confess. When you sin, you know, confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive it. And when we forgive, he says, whoever sins you forgive or release or remit, they're forgiven. And whoever sins you retain, they retain. Whoever, he didn't say if they have, they have to be alive. You know, he doesn't say they have to come and apologize. He just said, there's no conditions. You just go ahead and forgive. 
that means you just have every privilege to go to that high court of heaven. That's kind of the theme running through the whole Bible, as we've talked about in the last couple of times. It's a theme, the court of heaven that a lot of people don't even consider that we're so nearsighted in this whole spiritual thing. We don't see what's really deep and what's really prevailing and what undergirds this whole thing is justice and mercy. And God is one and one with himself. And they're both included in him, complete and satisfied. So truth is what the law of truth that brings freedom. It brings what, what, what freedom from what? Have you ever thought of that? Truth, Jesus said, you shall know the truth. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay, um, freedom free. What does that mean? Free to do what you want. Uh, that is nice work. Free to do what I want doesn't always work because some of the people are around me don't want me to do that. So it doesn't feel good. And it doesn't work out. But it's the freedom from guilt. Freedom from guilt, the oppression, the condemnation, the demonic judgments that flow from the guilt of sinning. A lot of times we're tricked. We feel bad. We, we, somebody tells us what was your fault, your choice. Now, you know, you've got to deal with it. God's mad at you, and it's going to be a while, so do a little penance while you're waiting. You know, that's not what God says. We don't have time to do a lot of penance. Penance isn't even really what God says to do. Jesus said when they were kind of scolding his disciples because they weren't fasting enough, Jesus said, well, can they fast when they're with the bridegroom, for crying out loud? We're having a party here. We can't fast. We can't. He didn't say to the disciples when they messed up, go do some penance. Here's your penance. He didn't say, okay, prove that you're really sorry by, you know, whatever. You know how the penance thing goes. I'm not going to knock anybody's particular deal here. But he didn't say that. He said, you don't know what spirit you're listening to right now. He said that to Peter. He said that to James. He said that to John. And we saw that in Judas. They all had bouts with this demon spirit, evil spirit um, that wanted to rule and prevail and uh, provoke and, you know, persuade them. But truth brings us freedom from guilt and the demonic judgments that flow from guilt because guilt says you're guilty, therefore you deserve to be punished, you deserve pain. If you're in a lot of pain, look, just work it backwards a little bit. Look at this pain. I'm, I'm in pain because why? Because I'm feeling bad. Why am I feeling bad? Because I'm, I am bad, because I did something bad, because I'm guilty, because I sinned. Okay, ask God to forgive you for the sin and then ask God to remove the demonic infliction of the judgment because it's, demonic, it's a demonic judgment. It's not a God judgment. Jesus said, you're already condemned, all of you. He doesn't hear. He's not here to condemn us. He says, I'm here to seek and save that which is lost. For God so loved the world. By the way, that's God's favorite verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, I'm going to do a radio show on the devil's favorite verses in the Bible. That ought to be interesting because he has favorites. Did you know that? The devil's favorite verses in the Bible. And I think we're going to do a radio show on that really quickly, pretty soon. Maybe next week. Who knows? Um, Don't count on it for next week, but we're going to get it. The devil's favorite verses in the Bible. But God has his God's favorite verses for God so loved that he gave. And these demonic judgments break up the freedom, the freedom that we, God wants us to have to live and move and have our being in him. Um, freedom from truth brings freedom from guilt and makes us peaceful and creates a peaceful and right relationship between us and God, going back to the word relationship. 
freedom, truth, restore. When you believe that God is true and God is what he says and God does what he says and, and it's right the way God says it and God doesn't have it wrong and he's, he's, he's got it right, guys. He's got it completely right. And a lot of us don't rightly divide it. We've been, the devil's taken the verses and twisted them out of context, no doubt. But God's got it right. And when you rightly divide the holy word of truth, it brings you to freedom and peace and right relationship between yourself and God. Um, so truth is here to crush condemnation that tries to grip our souls. That was made against us by the accuser of the brethren. It's like in trial, in a, in a court trial, you know, the, the, the prosecuting attorney, he presents all his evidence, his sin, the, the, um, uh, the, the witnesses, the whatever he does to present to make you just absolutely de- de- despised by the jury. Um, looking totally guilty until the point where you're almost convinced yourself and then up steps the defender the the lord jesus christ our advocate and he begins to present his case for truth and righteousness and he just smashes the devil's arguments it's like those closing arguments at the trial it's just like yeah yeah that's it go for it you know and you you feel the the, the joy of the truth prevailing against the accusations of the evil one but, however, when we trade truth for a lie, um, as we see, so um, in Romans 1, I'm going to read this. So methodically, God explains how this happened in Romans 1, how the truth was exchanged. And this is where, in verse 18, Romans 1:18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because, why? Because what may be known of God is manifested in them, for God has shown it to them. In other words, God has revealed himself to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that that are made, even his eternal power and godhood, or Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So God put it right in his creatures to recognize the truth, to resonate with the truth, to understand these things, to know the truth. It, there's no mistake. It was clearly planted within us because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and foolish in their heart and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they be, deliberately rejected themselves. And the truth that was in them, that was God's truth. They, re, they turned against their own selves, rejected themselves and the truth of God that was in them. They were not thankful. They became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is exactly, exactly where the world is right now. You look out your window, you look into your computer, you listen to the news, you drive your car in the street. It is right there. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. This foolishness has extended to the place where we have, first of all, rejected ourselves and, our, and the truth of God that's in us. And now we're going to recreate ourselves through our own genius and ingenious technology based on and, and inspired by the devil himself. To recreate ourselves, recreate our immortality, recreate our... Uh, whatever, perfect on, uh, improve on what God has originally created. It is headed for absolute disaster and the junk pile, the fire pit. 
Therefore, God was forced, if you will, also gave them up to uncleanness, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, to, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Chose, deceived, deliberately. Because when, they, when, when the truth was represented to them, they rejected it again and again and again. Being led as the devil down this foolish, vile path of basically uh, probates anti-God, anti-self people. They're, they're not even, they can't relate to this relationship. They don't want it, the relationship with God. They don't want it. So therefore, God is not throwing them into hell. They do not want to go to heaven. Therefore, God is not forcing them to go to heaven. He's not throwing them into hell. They're choosing to go there because of their foolish minds and hearts being darkened and rejecting the love of God, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. There it is. The lie. The big deal is the lie. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Actually, I don't think they're even serving the creature. I think they're serving the demon who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. There you have it. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Yeah. Do we have to say a lot about that? Likewise, also the men having, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. That's a direct quote from God. I didn't say that. I didn't. It's, it's the way it is. God said it. It's perfectly said. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors, evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who are practicing them. They know the righteous judgments of God. They still know that. But not only do they reject the righteous judgments of God for themselves, they actually help proselytize other people to get other people to be led, misled, led astray into practicing unrighteousness with them, like misery and destruction love company. And so therefore you see that all of this deception on the devil's part And our decision to embrace the lies have left nothing for God to do but reveal his wrath from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's because he is a God of love, not because he's a God of hatred and violence. God is not willing that any should perish. He reserves for himself the right to judge the souls and weigh the hearts and test the wills of all mankind. Though they are many... um, players and parts in this drama, this human love story, God reserves the right to reconcile mercy and justice within his own character. That is his own character. He's, he's resolving, he's re- reconciling his character, the intentions to complete this work, 
this most profound act. This is actually the third act of God. In Act 1, he created us. In Act 2, he redeemed us. Now he's, we're in Act 3 of the drama, where he, his profound act is the final judgment restor, and restoration of justice, mercy, and truth. So we're in Act 3 of this human drama. And with that, we would like to pray and ask you to consider you're still in Act 3. The ending can be rewritten if you're lost. The ending can be rewritten if you're struggling into victory. It doesn't have to be despair, defeat, discouragement. And I would ask you guys, do all of us a favor. And if you believe what's been said today on the radio, that you please introduce this Rescue Radio, Blog Talk Radio show to some of your friends. You can go to the website, liferecovery.com. You can pick it up there. There's all listed in the archives, every show. And you can, these are just like teaching, discipleship, encouragements, um, morsels of, of food, energy bars, if you will, on the way to heaven as we, as we taste and see that the Lord is good. So please pass these things on. Help us. We're running out of time, all of us. You know, there's three important things, time, money, and energy. And we're running out of all three of them, all of us, because this thing is winding down. So the harvest is out there. God bless you. Father, we pray right now that I encourage each one who's heard this to make a disciple. Go tell somebody about the good news. Go explain this. Help someone else to understand it. Lord, not to be quiet, not to be silent. Lord, our silence is also a choice that we make to not speak up for the things of God. So get us out of that place of fear and silence and open our mouths. Give us boldness, understanding, cause us to speak as the oracles of God. And I bless each one who listens in Jesus' name. Amen. I have an emergency. What is your location? Because there's a war for your soul.